Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Everyone, I'm Jeff, uh, one of the pastors at Salt Church. Welcome if you're new or visiting today with us. Great to have you here. How exciting was that to see Brooke's story and see how God had been at work changing her life. That's what God is like. That's what our God does. Uh, And I'm going to make the call as we look at this part of God's Word. I think these sentences are in the top 10 best sentences in the whole Bible. I made it. You've heard it here first. Uh, If you were going to get a tat, this is what you would get. I'm too much of a wuss to ever get a tat, but if I did get a tat, this would be a top contender. Uh, Because we've been looking across this series, two gold chapters we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, how Jesus' resurrection changes our life now, and in Romans 8, we've seen how God is for us, and that's exactly what this is about. Look at verse 31 with me. Uh, Have a there, look there. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's all about God being for us, this whole chapter, especially this last bit. And what's it like to have someone who is for you? Someone who's got your back, someone who's on your side, someone who's trustworthy, you can tell them anything. Someone who's always available, someone who's with you, no matter what happens. Uh, these are some of my friends, Hugh and... Oh, come, there we are. These are my friends, Hugh and Jess. Uh, I met Hugh and Jess when they were in their early 20s and they were just about to get married. So they were planning their wedding at the time, you know, invites and reception and who in the bridal party was least likely to make a long embarrassing speech. Let's give it to them. And they were living separately with different housemates and their plan was to move in together after they'd gotten married and made the promises first and everything was going really smoothly. Until a few months out, Hugh one day just had trouble seeing And then without warning, he fainted. And he went to the doctor and he had a series of different tests and he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And it was a massive shock for him because he was this young, healthy guy. He exercised heaps. He had a good diet. But overnight, he was taking insulin. He was measuring his blood sugar levels. And he was given info sheets about the risk of nerve damage and vision loss and stroke and kidney failure and heart disease if he didn't learn to manage his diabetes well. It was a really scary time for him. It was quite a shock. But his biggest fear was Jess. He was really afraid that Jess was going to call off the wedding because Hugh's life had changed and Jess was about to marry someone with a disability. Now, not usually a life-threatening disability, generally easy for an adult to manage, but still a disability that would impact Hugh for the rest of his life. This is not the man that Jess had been dating. This is not what she'd signed up for. And so when Hugh told Jess, he was really worried to know how she was going to react. And Jess said, let's get married sooner so I can move in and start looking after you. In fact, forget our friends and family Forget the wedding, forget the reception and the speeches and everything. I'm going to call our celebrant. Let's get married right now so that I can start caring for you. Jess was for Hugh, on his side, had his back. Uh, These two friends of mine are awesome. Uh, Sadly, I think we all know and maybe we've experienced many marriages, many friendships, many families are not like this. But God is like this. 
God is for us. And in these verses, we're going to see how God is for us, how, can we, how we can be certain God is for us. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes these sentences. It's why he finishes this magnificent chapter in this way. He is sure that God is for us, and he wants us to be sure that God is for us. And they're really reassuring verses that give us a lot of peace. They're also realistic verses that show us what to expect. And in these verses, Paul asks and answers seven questions. So we're going to trace our way through these seven questions. Seven questions to show us that God is for us. Have a look at the first one in verse 31. The first two in verse 31. Follow along with me. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As Paul looks back at all the things we've seen over the last week, he says, what can we say in response? If God is for us, who can be against us? And what answer do you reckon he's expecting to that question? Who can be against us? The answer is no one. But that's not true, is it? There's plenty of people against you if you're a Christian. There's plenty of people against you in life, whoever you are. But especially as a Christian, it feels like across my lifetime, it's become harder to be a Christian than it used to be. I think it'll be harder for the next generation coming through to be Christians than it has been for us. Uh, Increasingly, there's a larger number of people against against Christians, it seems. In fact, Paul gives us seven things that could be against us in verse 35. Have a look with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All those things can be against you as a Christian and more. See, God's love doesn't protect us from danger. It's not like Christians have this force field around us and trouble just bounces off. We face the same difficulties as everybody else. So verse 31 is not saying, if God is for us, no one can be against us. It's saying, if God is for us, who cares who's against you? Because it's whoever it is, whatever it is, it can't overpower God. It can't turn God against you. God will still be for you. Now, how do we know that God is for us? Well, I think we see it in God's past actions and in God's future promises. We know God is for us because of what he's done in the past for us, which is question number three in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How do we know God is for us? Because of what he's done in the past. We know God's for us because he gave his son. God loves his son, Jesus. Think about the relationship between the father and the son for a second. It's impossible to overstate how much the father loves the son. Uh, You might love your friends and your family. I hope you do. Uh, Our love pales into insignificance compared to the father's love for his son. But God the Father sent his precious son into the world. He asked his son to die like a criminal on a cross. God the Father didn't spare his son. He didn't hold back the most precious thing he could give. He's given us his best. So Paul's point here is, of course God will give us the rest. He's given the best, he'll give the rest, he'll give us everything else we need. We know God's for us because of what he's done in the past. Um, A few years ago, I went away for a weekend, staying in a house with about 10 friends. 
And we were having a great time. And one night after dinner, uh, one of the guys brought out two bottles of wine. Uh, he had stored them in his cellar in his house for a number of years. One of them was 10 years old. The other was 30 years old. Uh, and he got out a corkscrew and he opened the 30-year-old bottle of wine and he shared it with all 10 of us. And I don't know much about wine. Uh, I know that goon doesn't age very well. Um, on the rare case that I ever buy wine, $5 is my limit. Uh, I don't know anything, but my hunch is that a 30-year-old bottle of wine would cost a lot of money and be worth quite a lot. So it was no surprise later in the night when he then opened the 10-year-old bottle of wine and shared that out with us. He'd given us his best. He didn't spare it. He shared it with us all. He gave us his best. Of course he would share the other thing too. It's the same logic here. God didn't spare his son. So of course God will give us everything else we need. Of course God is for us. And there's even more proof in the next question in verse 33. Question number four, verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. We know God's for us because he's justified us. And that language means declaring not guilty. Justifying means declaring not guilty. It's the language of a courtroom where evidence is presented and the judge makes a verdict guilty or not guilty. Guilty or justified. And God gave his verdict We are just, we are not guilty. But of course, we all know the verdict should be guilty. We know ourselves, we know our failures. We've all failed to live God's way. None of us have done that perfectly. And unlike human judges that you could fool, unlike a human legal system where you could find a loophole to work with, God knows everything. And God is perfectly just. And yet, God declares us not guilty. Because when God didn't spare his own son, it means that God poured his justice on Jesus, not on us. Jesus died so that we could be credited with Jesus' righteousness. He paid the penalty. He did the time for our crimes. It's kind of like God is in the courtroom and he looks at himself in the person of his son and he says to us, not guilty, justified. We're treated just as if we'd never sinned. And no one can overturn that verdict of God, which is the fifth question in verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Who can overrule that verdict of God? No one. Uh, In Australia, we have different law courts. Uh, So if after this morning you head on out, you are walking along the street and someone comes and steals your phone, devastating, what can you do? Well, you can, if, if the cops manage to catch that criminal, you can, that criminal will appear before the magistrate's court. The local magistrate will see them, they'll appear before the magistrate's court. If they walk though, you can appeal and get your case heard in the district court. If there's still no justice, you can appeal to the Supreme Court of New South Wales. If there's still no resolution, you can go to the Federal Court of Australia. And if it's still not resolved, you have one last stop, the High Court of Australia. And that's it. That judgment is final. Whatever the High Court says cannot be overturned, at least according to the Wikipedia article I read. (laughs) Now, Christians, we stood before the next court, 
We stood before the highest court, the court of heaven. And God said, not guilty, justified. That verdict is final. It cannot be overturned. There is no condemnation. In fact, more than that, right now, far from condemning us, God is defending us. Because look at the rest of verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. God the Son is interceding for us. He's representing us. He's advocating for us. The evidence that we are right with God is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven for eternity, which means that we are safe. If you trust Jesus as your savior, if you follow Jesus as your king, you are safe with God for eternity. About five years ago, my grandma died. Uh, my dad, when my dad was 14, he invited his mum and dad along to a Billy Graham crusade in Sydney, 1969. And my grandma and grandpa both became Christians at the Billy Graham crusade in 1969. And uh, my grandma trusted Jesus for the rest of her life from that point onwards. And there were so many stories at her funeral five years ago of how she loved and served and trusted and obeyed God for decades, for decades. But in the weeks before she died, she became very anxious that she was not right with God. Uh, She was worried that to be safe with God, Jesus wasn't enough. She really strongly felt that, that, that she needed to do more, that she had to be a better person. She had to serve more. She had to be good enough for God somehow. And my dad, while she was in her, uh, on her deathbed, my dad read these verses from Romans 8 to her. And my younger sister read these verses at her funeral because this is real. This is real. This is how you get safety with God. If you trust Jesus as your savior and obey him as your king, you are safe with God and no one can overturn that. Death can't overturn that. No one can bring a charge against you. Not even we can bring a charge against us. And I wonder if sometimes instead of enjoying the the safety, we bring a charge against us. We keep a list of all the ways that we failed Forget this, not even that list can stick. We can't even overturn God's verdict on us. Our feelings can't overturn God's verdict on us. Nothing can overturn God's verdict on us. In so many ways, God is for us. God is for us because of what he's done in the past. Because of choosing us and justifying us and giving his son for us. Declaring us not guilty. But will God be for us in the future? What about when hardship comes, when suffering comes? What about when we feel far away from God and separate from God? Well, that's the last two questions. The last two questions show God's for us because of what he's promised in the future, in the present and the future. So have a look at the last two questions in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. 
We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You'll see there that little bit might be indented in your Bible. For your sake we face death, we consider it a sheep. You'll see, you might have a little footnote, it tells you that comes from Psalm 44, uh, the psalm that Amy read out for us earlier. And this psalm that he's quoting here is a song from ancient Israel singing to God as they experience God's judgment, as they experience all those things in the list in verse 35. They experienced hardship and trouble and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. That's what they're living through in Psalm 44. But the problem is in that Psalm, the problem is all those things are God's normal judgment in the Old Testament on ungodly people. It's what God gives to people when they turn away from him as a judgment on their sin. But in Psalm 44, they haven't turned away from God. They're trusting and obeying God. It's a rare moment in the Old Testament when they're actually living God's way. They're doing a great job of it. But yet, they're suffering as if they were God's enemies, as if they were ungodly and rebellious. And so in the psalm, they ask God, what is going on? Have you abandoned us? Has something separated us from your love? Have you been overpowered? Have you changed your mind about us? Were you for us in the past, but you're not going to be for us in the future? And these are our questions too. We might not put them in those words, but these are the kind of questions that we asked. We might agree as a statement that God is for us, but it doesn't feel true all the time in our experiences. Or we might agree that God was for people in the Bible, or he was for us in the past. We're uncertain whether he'll still be for us in the future. What if God is overpowered? What if God changes your mind about us? Can something separate me from God's love? And the answer is verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you're a Christian, Jesus loves you. And nothing can stop him from loving you. No suffering Not our doubt or our fears or our feelings, not anything. Verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see the ends of the spectrum there? Life or death present or future height of creation depth of creation everything in between in fact in all of that verse 37 says we are more than conquerors which is a very odd thing to say isn't it you can't be more than a conqueror you know either you win the battle or you don't either you get full marks on the test or you don't either you get the job at the interview or you don't But it's like we super win the war and we super smash the exam and we get super employed. We are more than conquerors. It's just so certain that God is for us in the future that we are more than conquerors. No matter what happens, we can be completely sure God is for us because of his past actions and his future promises, which is so reassuring. And it's also so very realistic. 
If you're a Christian, you will face trouble and hardship and suffering. God's love doesn't protect us from suffering. It's not like we have this force field around us where trouble bounces off. It's that God loves us in suffering. He's with us in trouble and hardship, which I think is very different to the pop version of Christianity. Uh, there's, a, there's a popular version of Christianity uh, where you get these kind of images. A popular version of Christianity, which tells us something like this. It tells us that God is for you, which means you're just going to win at life. Life is going to be fantastic because God is for you. Uh, it it, it kind of says God is for you means God exists for you. Not simply that God chooses to do good to us, but that God's only reason for existing is to do good to us. A little bit like Santa Claus. Why does Santa Claus exist? Just to do good to you. That's why Santa Claus is there. It's like saying that, that God is there to make your life easier and better and comfortable and fun. And the only reason there is a God at all is to make you happy. God is for us because God exists for us, is what popular Christianity teaches us, or a version of that, using different words. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. God doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around God. The reason God gave us life is so that we could give glory to God with our lives. The reason God the Son gave his life for us is so that we could be saved to give glory to God. The very reason God made us and God saved us is to give glory to God. And again, I find this really reassuring because it's so realistic This is not some empty promise that with God on your side, you're always going to win at life. This is a promise that when you face hardship, when you suffer, when you struggle, and you will, not even that can separate us from Jesus' love. Nothing can separate us from Jesus' love. Except for what? How would you fill in this blank? Nothing can separate me from the love of God except for... Uh, Last week I talked to you about the impossible application. Uh, A helpful question to ask as you read the Bible. What's an impossible way to apply this? How can this not apply to me to see if that's how we're accidentally applying it? Uh, And, you know, as an example, Jesus says, no one can serve God and money. You just can't do it. You can only have one master. You can't serve God and serve money. The impossible application is, yes, no one can serve God and money except for me. I've worked out a clever way to do it, but everybody else, they totally can't. Yeah, they really need to hear this, Jesus. This is good that you're telling them. That's an impossible application. Uh, Here's an impossible application. Nothing can separate us from God's love, nothing in all creation, except for what? How would you fill in the blank? I wonder if it's loss. Nothing can separate me from God and God's love unless God took my partner or he took my health or he took my job or he took my child or he took my unborn child. What about then? Does God really love you if that happens? What about doubt? What about pain? What about if I feel far from God and I'm worried that God is far from me? What about when our love for God is not a flame, it's barely even a tiny spark? What if I walked from God 
What if I separated myself from God? Would God stop me? Nothing could separate me except for me. What do we do with all those exceptions? Realize that there is no exception. Verse 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nor fear, nor doubt, nor pain, nor loss, nor anger, nor whatever. Nothing is able to separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. Which is so reassuring. It is so deeply reassuring. And it's also realistic too. It doesn't mean that God's love for us is always going to be easy to see. There's times when we might feel separated from God and feel far from God. We are not far from God. We are never far from God. We need to look at God's past actions and we need to look at his future promises. And that's what trusting God looks like. That's what faith is. Uh, There's a definition of faith I heard a number of years ago. I've shared a couple of times at Soul Church. I love it. I think it's really helpful. It comes from a guy named Broughton Knox in the 1950s. This is our, he used to be the principal of Moore Theological College. And this is what he used to say to his students. He said, faith is being certain that no matter your circumstances, the face of your heavenly father is turned toward you in love. Faith is being certain no matter your circumstances, the face of your heavenly father is turned toward you in love. That's what it means to trust God, to realize that. It's a great kindness of God when he shows it to us, when we can see it. But a lot of the time we have to trust him because you can't always see it. We have to trust God. But when we can't see it, whether we can see it or not, it doesn't make it any less true that God is for us. No matter what happens, we can be completely sure God is for us. And if God is for us, who cares what's against us? Let's pray.